Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Deepwater Key is a small island, small little key off the far east end of Grand Bahama, the, um, the east end that was just ravaged by Dorian, which we'll talk about, I assume, a little bit later. But Pinder himself had never fished for bonefish. He had never fly fished for him. He had, of course, caught them, you know, with hand lines, and he'd grown up on the east end foraging. His father was a sponger, and so when Drake hired him hired Pinder basically to um, clear mangroves and, and lug rocks off of the island that he intended to uh, develop for a fishing lodge. He asked, Drake asked Pinder, come here, let, let me show you these fish here. Have, do you know where to find them? And he pointed out a school of bonefish to, to David Pinder. And David, of course, said, oh, of course I do. You know, I, I've seen them. Uh, I've seen them everywhere. And um, he wondered to himself, you know, Pinder wondered to himself, what, what could Drake want with these fish? You know, they're they're full of bones and they're, they don't taste very good and so on and so forth. And so, you know, little did he know that the, the fish that he would go on the next year to guide Drake to, bonefish, would become the crux of the Bahamian tourism industry, you know, to the tune of $150 million a year. I'm Chris Dombrowski, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Well, we're having a beautiful day here. I hope you're having a beautiful day in your area, wherever that is. Got a great podcast for you today. I read a book recently that was actually recommended to me by a listener of the show. It's called Body of Water. It's by a guy named Chris Dombrowski, who is a Montana guy. And he wrote this book all about the Bahamas. So that's interesting. And I just really liked the book. I thought it was incredibly well-written and it told a story kind of in a way that I hadn't really heard before. It was about a really famous guy named David Pender and 
just a lot kind of about his life and his life is kind of the Bahamas life, like how the Bahamas became such a bonefish destination, how they embraced the bonefish. Can you love something to death by developing it too much so that we can go fish for bonefish? All of these questions certainly are top of mind and they certainly come up in this book and it was a fantastic book. I really liked it. And I love my conversation with Chris Dombrowski and that's coming up right now. Chris, man, thank you for coming on the podcast. I've got a lot of things to talk to you about. For those who are joining today, Chris Dombrowski, he's a poet and a writer, fishing guide in Montana. And I just read your book. I don't know why it took me so long to get to it, but Body of Water, all about the Bahamas. I read it actually before the hurricane. Really good. Well, thanks, Tom. I'm glad to be with you today. Um, I'm I'm sad I missed you when you were in Montana earlier than this, this fall, but we'll have to connect out here Most again definitely. soon. Um, I will be spending more and more time out there because both my boys are at Montana State, and it is, it's so awesome. I love Montana. I spent a lot of time in Wyoming, um, in Jackson. I used to guide down there. But then when I got started guiding in Key West, there were many years that I didn't go back until I had my, my kids were young. And then we took them out to Yellowstone and kind of started doing that kind of every other year we would get out there. And man, I guess it, I guess it had a big part in, um, <laughs> you know, kind of giving my kids the bug because both of them are just, they're all about Montana now. You know, it's, it's so awesome. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's fantastic. You'll always have a place to be. I once, if they're here now, in their uh, late teens, early 20s, they'll never leave. Well, you know, you do have, that's what I said too. And then, I, you know, once I got to the place in college to where I could actually spend a winter there, I gave it a shot. Of course, Bozeman's a little different than Jackson. Jackson's a very cold place. Bozeman seems to be a little warmer, but I'm, I'm speaking from, uh, I'm a snowbird. Like I went to, I spent a winter in Jackson Hole and I, that's how I ended up in Key West. So <laughs> I, went, I went as far as you could go <laughs> in the United States. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I can, I can see that for sure. I mean, um, we went down as a family to, um, to Arizona last, last spring, which tends to be a Montana spring looks like a winter anywhere else, you know, for the most part. And usually that those last fits of winter in March are the ones that are hardest to endure. So we try to get out of here uh, in early March. And we went down to Arizona and, and both my wife, Mary, and I were saying, I could do this every winter, you know. Um, I'd I don't know how long that bird season lasts in Arizona, but I'd love to have an extra couple of months to run the dogs. And um, Yeah, my kids love Montana. And they have really, my son just, has grown real fond of elk hunting. And so the last couple of years, he, he has been spending a lot of time in the, in the mountains. Um, last year, he did a little guiding, took a year off of school. Nice. Then he got refocused and decided he wanted to go back to school. And since he's been going back, he's had straight A's. So it was actually really good for him. That's outstanding. Uh, kind of decided that wasn't what he was, what he really wanted to do. Like he, he kind of comes, you, you'll, you'll understand this as a fishing guide, you know, there's like, there are people that, that start to guide because they want to fish more. And then there are other people that 
see guiding as an art, you sure. know, and it's like they go into guide mode and they're everything's about getting that person to catch a right. fish. Well, some other people, I'm sure you've run into plenty of them that they, they don't last very long in the guiding world because they uh, they kind of wish they were on the front. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. I know a few of those guys still. Even after 15 years, I, I look and I say, why? Why do you have the rod in your hand, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I first started guiding, that was the cardinal sin. Right. I mean, uh, you probably even know this family, but Vern Bressler, do you? Do oh, yeah. You, sure, are you familiar sure. with that yep. name? So that's who I started guiding for in uh, in in Jackson and uh, his son, Joe. And they, uh, I mean, he was just, you know, old school cowboy. And he just told me straight up, he's like, the worst thing you can do is, is, is fish on a, on a trip. You just don't do that ever yeah. because what'll happen is you'll catch the biggest fish and then they'll come back and they'll say, well, I didn't catch anything, but the guy caught a huge one. And he's like, if I ever hear that, you're done. I was like, oh, okay. Message, message received. <laughs> I know. I, I still remember my first year of guiding down on the big hole river it would have been, oh, far enough into the season, you know, late August, early September, I was maybe <clears throat> getting my wits about me just a little bit. And, um, I remember the float. We were floating the big hole. I had a single angler. We were going from Browns Bridge to Glen Bridge. And um, we pulled over in this little side channel to throw a hopper and a dropper through a, through a little trench. And I watched this client make a cast where I knew there was a fish. He, he made the drift 15, 20 times or so. And, and he said, okay, you know, he he's kind of resigned himself to the fact that he wasn't going to catch anything there. He said, I'm going to go take a leak. Will you hold this, you know, hold this rod for me? <laughs> I said, sure. And, and uh, he turned around and I took one cast, you know, and I hooked a 20 inch rainbow and played it kind of squeamishly <laughs> until he got back. And I just, <laughs> I remember the look on his face and I said to myself, I'll never do that again. You know? Yeah. Man, that's that's the worst. But you know, my my son kind of experienced that a little bit with the elk hunting because while he was a pretty good guide, he was he actually was fifty percent for the season um, on his first season elk guiding, which is I think that's pretty. Oh dang yeah, good. that's outstanding. Um, he still really hasn't really experienced a whole lot of it for himself, and so he's just kind of like it's a very fleeting season. I mean, even the fishing season is quite a bit longer than the elk archery season or something oh, like that. Yeah. So no people people yeah. lose jobs and 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 wives and and husbands all all the time over elk season for sure. Yeah, he's he's right. he's still crazy enough to to think. I know I don't do a whole lot of bird guy. I don't do any bird guiding, you know, for upland birds, but um. But I take buddies who um, don't hunt a whole lot. And um, when your dog points a covey of huns after tracking them for a mile up the mountain, you know, and, and your buddy gets up there and, and the gun is unloaded or something like that and he doesn't get his shot, <laughs> there, there's only so much of that you can take, you know. Um, I, right. that, whereas if we were, you know, on the, on the drift boat and somebody misses a fish, you just go, okay, well, we'll find another, uh, but elk. But elk. it's kind of the, it's kind of the mindset though. Don't you think? I mean, like if you were, if you were a bird guide, eh, that's just kind of part of the, part of the deal. You know, like people are going to mess up. People aren't going to be as in, in, in as good a shape as you. They're not going to be able to go up the mountain. Right, you're going right. to know that there's a covey up there, but you're, you know, you got to stop short and turn around and go back. And it's like, okay, well, that's, that's kind of what I'm here for. Yeah. But well, I don't I know. Like it's like it, a mindset. Yeah. And and you what you're saying is is your son 
is a little too hungry for elk to still to to make a go of it as a as an elk right. guy despite his proficiency at it. Right, exactly. And and but it turned out it was great for him yeah. because it really refocused him on school. And uh since he's been back, he's been doing remarkably well. That's awesome. And then my younger son went out there too and uh his first year you know he, he chose a different school and uh then transferred to Montana and Man, the difference this year between last year, just talking to him on the phone, he's just so happy. And it's so nice to see that. How old are your kids? Now they are. Luca, our son, is 15. Molly, our middle daughter, is 11. And Lily, our little one, is nine. So quite a spread. And Luca's a freshman in high school now. He's a super multi-talented dude he's a he's a writer of sorts he, he writes songs and records them and, and they're fantastic and um also he's he's kind of a um uh fantastic athlete too he's a soccer player and a runner and the girls are great soccer players as well and super creative and you know real all of them are real earthy kids i'd say lily our little one is definitely the one who's caught the fishing bug the most intensely, you know, she's, she's into mm-hmm. it. She's, she's always like, you know, she's been sick this week and she's been really upset because she thinks she's not going to be well enough to go fishing on Sunday, which is something we'd been planning on doing. <laughs> um, but yeah, she gets after it. And, um, I think, I don't know if you, I, I would imagine that with your sons, like you had a, a bunch of fishing buddies who kind of spoiled them early on, you know, and, um, mm-hmm. that's, a little bit what it's been like for Luca. I mean, he, he, he was essentially fishing with guides for his whole, um, upbringing. And so, you know, now when we go out and fishing's a little bit tough, he, he looks at me like, are there no fish in this river? You know, <laughs> why don't I have an <laughs> yeah, that's the, on? That's the double edged sword, man. It's like that, that knife edge you walk when you're, when you're getting kids into things and, and then you have, you know, develop this skill set of guiding people and knowing where the fish are and having this network of people that you can talk to to find out like where where whatever it is that you're looking for is happening. And then putting, you know, you want to do the best for your kids. Like, I'm going to put them right on the meat. Mm-hmm. And you do. And, you know, then it's kind of like, you know, my son, my sons were catching bonefish when they were four years right. old. And it's like, okay, uh, how do you top that? You know, well, permit. Okay, well, they did that when they were five years old. <laughs> yeah, so, like, totally. I mean, you know, it's like, okay, well, now what? But, you know, they kind of went through a little phase of kind of being a little jaded as far as the fishing goes. But then they then they went back to it. Like, now they, now I think they fully appreciate it, as, especially as they start to try to do it kind of on their own and uh, realize, oh, okay, it's, a, it's not as easy as as a thought, yeah. you know, or. Well, it's cool is to know too, that your son's, I mean, <sighs> branching out into the elk hunting world, because, um, I mean, that's, that's probably as close as, as a person can get to flats fishing in, um, you know, in the West anyway. I mean, the hunting right. equivalent of it, it's, it's so visual and it's, um, absolutely, um, unforgiving right um you just don't they don't make mistakes very 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 rarely 
Um, and so I tell you, um, it's addicting too. Oh yeah, I know I mean, the whole thing about it. You're just in this beautiful setting. It's incredibly physical. You're you're hunting an incredibly smart animal, and uh, it's just you know to have success is is incredible. And but just, even just to be there, like it, it, when I go hunting with him, I'm like, well, we're kind of doing the things that. I would do if I wasn't hunting. We're hiking yeah. in the backcountry. It's beautiful. It's awesome. And these are the kind of areas that I want to be in. And I don't know. The only thing that kind of gets me about the elk hunting, and maybe I'm kind of a wuss, but it's like all the time I spent in Yellowstone, you're kind of brainwashed into what what good good kind of protocol is in bear country. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. should make noise. You should, right. you should make sure that, you know, your the wind's at your back so that anything ahead of you can smell you coming and, the, you know, the bear, you're not going to surprise any bears and, and, you know, stay on the trail. And then when you go elk hunting, it's like everything you're doing is exactly the opposite of that. So no, you're, uh, it makes uh, yeah. me a little nervous. I bet. I bet. I mean, um, I have a saying with, you know, with birds, there's, there's no, um, no pheasant worth dying for, you know, cause a lot of our <laughs> pheasant country abuts grizz, grizz country, you know, and, um, I guess as good yeah. as elk tastes, I would have to agree. There's not really a, an elk worth dying Man. for either, but, um, no, it, yeah. it definitely not. But uh, you know, my feel is like, it's going to have, if it happens, it's going to happen like really quickly uh-huh. and like where we were hunting this year, there were, there was an attack, yeah. you know, only, only three or four miles away. And, um, we heard about it after we got back and we're like, wow, like three miles. Yeah. That's, I mean, you, you just know you're in, it doesn't take much to know. I mean, you look around, you're like, wow, this is grizzly country for sure. <laughs> yeah. I just heard about a grizz that had been killed on the highway about two miles from, a, um, a spot that I, frequently uh hunt for huns and for hungarian partridge and um you know i told myself for years oh these hills are too barren they don't come up here blah 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 and and, um you know i think the answer the truth of it is in the west you know the rocky mountain west they're just everywhere now you know um i don't know if you saw this book i should i should get a copy of it to you and you could send it to your sons um but there's a great new book called down from the mountain by a guy named Bryce Andrews that came out this spring and he follows, um, I'll just, let's just call it the grizz, the, the human grizzly bear interface, um, on the edge of the mission mountains, North of Missoula. The missions are, uh, a super stark, rugged, beautiful range. I I mean, I'm prejudiced, but I would call the missions the, the most beautiful mountain range in montana they kind of the north the the north end of the missions touches up against flathead lake and the the south end of the missions kind of curls around the town of saint ignatius um but the the eastern edge abuts the bob marshall or you you can get into the bob directly from the mission so for years you know if there were problem bears in the um the bob they put them in the missions and and so on and so forth and there were a couple of strange encounters uh, last year, no, a, a while back, um, where some pheasant hunters, you know, ran into some grizzlies. In fact, a guiding buddy of mine um, got got grabbed by a sow and uh, that was protecting Jeez. two cubs. And, um, you know, while he was hunting pheasants, and this is all country that I, when I was younger, I used to crawl around on my knees to get through the brush, you know, and, and, um, 
we'd get into some swamps that were super thick, like, you know, reminding me of uh, Dagobah from the old Star Wars movies, you know, and um, <laughs> I, I didn't think anything of it. You know, I, I, I can remember seeing scat piles that would, you know, fill your kitchen sink, and I just think, well, okay. Um, but anyway, the book, Bryce's book, is is a fantastic examination of of kind of where we are right now in terms of human interactions with grizzlies and um, the kind of tragedy of the missions right now that range is that a lot of the farmers are, um, are growing corn and the corn mm-hmm. is essentially addictive to these grizzlies. They, they just can't stop eating it. It's terrible for them. It ruins their teeth. It's basically without nutrition. And of course um, they aren't, exerting any energy to to get it so that um you know they're not foraging they're not digging they're not climbing they just sit in these um in these big old cornfields and then um and they won't leave i mean to the extent that when the sites and the combines finally come to clean up the corn the um they're they're cornering these grizzlies in like 10 by 20 yard patches of corn that would not be fun even in a tractor i wouldn't be like no no, thank you. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, you, I'm glad you're worried about your son, though. That's, I think that's a real, it's a real thing, you know. Um, but well, you know, there's at some point, you know, there's some like pretty controversial topics to, to be discussed. Like, yeah, as there are a lot more bears now than when, when I was guiding and messing around out there, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And, <laughs> I mean, at what point are there enough that you have to hunt them or, or you should hunt them because there's no fear. Like grizzly bears, they have no reason to fear man. No, you know? I think, and yeah. And they're, they're entering environments where they, they either didn't exist before or we didn't see them before. You know, I have this, like, there's a stretch on the Blackfoot that we float frequently. I hope that I'm boiling some water for some tea. I hope that's not too loud, but, um, <laughs> no, it's you know, um, there's a stretch. It's a popular stretch. It's a gorgeous stretch of river called the box Canyon. And I would say in there this year, phew, I know guides or buddies who have seen, who have had like, say, let's say a dozen grizzly bear encounters, you know, and over my 21 years of guiding, I've known of two in that same stretch. Now by encounters, I mean, they saw, you know, the, the encounters weren't, weren't, um, bad or dangerous or anything, but, um, I did have two buddies get charged while they were in their boats. Um, a sow had, a had two cubs and a, and a elk down. And, um, it was early in June and probably, you know, she hadn't seen a whole lot of boat traffic. Um, but, um, either we're, we're hearing about it more because our networks are more connected and we have Instagram and, and all that stuff, or there are, um, Mm -hmm. you know, or they're trickling out into areas where we didn't see them before. Um, I mean, I know there was a Grizz that, FWP captured on the Stevensville golf course. Um, Stevensville, Montana is in the Bitterroot Valley. And there hadn't been a recorded grizz in the Bitterroot for, I want to say, at least several decades. I could I could be wrong on that uh, that number. But, you know, they thought they had a black bear that was digging up the fairways. And it turns out it was this young grizz. <laughs> 
I think they're running out of places to to put them in terms of um, you know where you would would transport a quote unquote problem bear. Um, yeah, so. but you do you, you don't think that it's just the problem bears that are you know being being displaced or or replaced into different areas that is create. I no, mean, overall, no. there's just an explosion oh, yeah. of of the the population. Yeah, what I mean is that 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 bear is a quote problem bear because it's found itself somewhere it right. normally wouldn't have because there's no room for it anywhere else, you know, in the norm, right, quote exactly. unquote normal. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating question. I mean, it's, it delves and kind of braids together a lot of the pressing questions about the West, you know, like we love it more and more of us love it every year. Uh, where are we going to live in relation to the wild creatures and, um, how right. are we going to adjust the way we, you know, manage them and, and, um, have dealt with them over the years. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't have a, a religious thought about it as a, as a lot of my friends do, you know, in terms of, uh, I don't, I don't really fall on one side of the argument or the other. I just think like, um, well, here we are, you know, how are we going to deal with it? Um, I'm, well, that's you know what a what an interesting uh, kind of segue you you made probably accidentally into one of the questions that I wanted to ask you um, about your book because you know you're you're a Montana guy that's writing a book about the Bahamas and you did it in such a way that it was really beautiful like the the way that you did this and if if someone hasn't read the book it's it's basically kind of a a history lesson and then there's kind of a then there's kind of like a, a a geography lesson and then there's some you know there's some science in there for the bonefish and you know the history of of how the bonefish came to be you know such a such a kind of glamour species today but david pender is kind of the subject and he was one of the one of the earliest bahamian guides there and um, this book, like when I read it, some one of actually the listeners of this podcast suggested it to me. When I, I I usually ask for guest suggestions, and somebody suggested you because they had read your book recently as well, and so I read it, and immediately like a lot of worlds started to intersect. So many of the people that you talk about in that book, I knew from from Key West because there's a sure, real tight sure. connection, yeah. right? from there like gil drake was a guide in right West famous when, famous when guide, i was yeah. guiding there and yeah very very famous guide and he was in your book and um john dickinson was uh used to run Deepwater k and right. his his son paul adams is now over at, at north, north riding, riding point. point yeah and and even to the point of like you you had you had a story in there about a coca-cola executive and i'm pretty sure i know who who that might have uh-huh. been too but like this whole the way that you did this just kind of intersected so so well with my world and people that I knew and then having been over there and I'm no expert on it I've been over there you know maybe maybe 15 or 20 times but <clears throat> the the issues that you brought up in there and the issues that are going on there are evident to someone that goes there for the very first time for the most part right like development like we're talking about, you know, Montana and, you know, is it possible to love it to death? And that was a big part of your book, Body of Water, that 
Yeah. There's a big part of that. I get, like, you're right, what, right. What's going on there? Well, um, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm tend to be somebody who, oh, just backs into stuff, you know, um, or who stumbles, stumbles upon, um, the, what, what should otherwise be obvious, you know? And, um, the question that I got from a lot of friends and even my editors was, you know, why aren't you writing this book about Montana? You, you've guided there for 20 years. Clearly you can elucidate or, you know, um, show the same kind of dynamic taking place, um, in Montana. Why, right. Why set it in the Bahamas? And the answer is, you know, um, I think when I first went down to the Bahamas and I met David Pinder, um, I didn't realize intertwined his life was with not only the bone fishing world, but, you know, as you say, the econ, the economy of the islands, um, ecotourism, the root of it really is the bonefish in the Bahamas and so on and so forth. So, mm-hmm. um, I was surprised to see all those connections and, um, you know, as Robert Frost said, no, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. And there was a lot of that, um, that went on for me to just watch those connections kind of click into place. Um, so yeah, now that I look back at it, I, I, I see, um, Oh, I could have written this, uh, not the same book set in Montana, but, um, I've had many people approach me in the last, um, years or two and say, Hey, um, would you think about writing a sequel about this guy in the West or, or so on and so forth? And, um, I would have to say the answer is no, because the other thing that, um, that worked about, um, me in the Bahamas is, you know, the traveler, um, I, of course, I, Chris Dombrowski, was an actual traveler to the Bahamas, right? Um, but mm-hmm. the, the archetypal figure of the traveler, you know, is someone who gets to see a place with fresh eyes and without a whole lot of 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 prejudice or um, or even struggle. You know, I mean, it's hard, I think, to write. Um, about one's home ground. I mean, I, I've lived in Montana since yeah. since 1995, and and um, I I think I'm finally okay writing about it. I'm I'm working on a new book of nonfiction that's set in Montana, but it was way easier for me to approach this subject matter as a kind of you know a pilgrim or a traveler. Um, right. Uh, and so I think well, it's almost like your qualification for writing the book is that you don't, don't have experience there. exactly like, yeah, or, or yeah, much experience right. and you don't have yeah. a, you're not jaded you don't have like preconceived notions you're like learning all about this for the first time and putting the connections together for yourself right and and then then asking other questions that you know i mean i've been over there a lot more than you have and i didn't know like a big part of this history about like when the bahamas come to this crossroads of wow we could be you know an economy driven <laughs> right. by illegal drug trade or is there another option? And it's like, well, you got this bonefish that people are crazy about. How would we go that route? And then they decided to. And, and that was a huge thing. But but the fact that you kind of end up there is is interesting. And then then bring David Pender's life into it and how he started guiding for $5 a day and, you know, just... The, the whole thing was super interesting the way that you did it. 
I'm so glad that you feel that way. I mean, I had some very fortunate um, editorial help early on. Um, both of my editors, uh, Patrick Thomas, who's now at the San Francisco Chronicle, and, and Daniel Slager, who's a publisher at Milkweed, neither of these guys fished at all. You know, so um, the original manuscript that I approached them with was um, far less um, nuanced in terms of the uh, other subject matter that it it crossed paths with. You know, it was way more of a fishing book uh, to begin with. And then Patrick would say something like, you know, you have a sentence about the economic impact of the bonefish here. I think you need a chapter to be realistic, you know, and so on (laughs) and so forth. And so... Um, then I had to research, which is, you know, I mean, if you want to put yourself to sleep at night, just read Bahamian history before bed. It's just absolutely <laughs> exhausting. But then I'd come upon stuff like that really, really intrigued me, such as um, the fact that the limestone archipelago, which creates such a dynamic environment for the bonefish because of the freshwater lens that you know uh, the limestone i guess i'll say creates because i don't have a better geological verb uh on my tongue right now but you know limes the limestone that allows for such a great bonefish habitat is also um a really crappy ground to grow um sugarcane on right um and so right if you don't have sugarcane, you really don't have a slave trade. Um, and that's, you know, which led me to to kind of um, start researching the slave trade in the Bahamas, which was very complex and way less um, uh, straightforward than, say, like uh, what went on in Cuba or, or, I mean, Jamaica, rather, or, or so on and so forth. And so... Um, yeah, the, as soon as door doors started opening um, research-wise, then you, you hit this phase of kind of, um, you know, what Joan Didion calls magical thinking. And uh, suddenly all the connections that exist, you know, we know everything is infinitely connected. We just don't always see it or in, intuit it, right? Um, but when those connections kind of start flying open and the doors start uh, leading to other doors and so on and so forth, then... Uh, then it gets fun. And then of course it gets messy and you got to go back to the edit editing floor and, um, kill some darlings, uh, and, uh, and get back, get back to the work. So. I've never written a book, but I can, you know, when you're talking about all these things and like how, how you need a chapter on this. And then, you know, you mentioned something about like the, 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 you know, some sort of scientific uh, fact about a bonefish, and then now you got to go way deeper into that. Seems like seems like that's kind of an interesting journey on writing a book to where you're you're going down roads that you didn't intend to in the beginning. But I guess people that understand what makes a book a book are kind of leading you in that way, like your editors and and other people like that. How much of how much of your book did went like that, like down these rabbit uh-huh. holes that you really hadn't intended going on? That's a great question. I feel like, um, you know, half of it really, um, it's a walkabout in, in, in terms of, um, you know, 
I think of of writing this way. Um, I think Ian Fraser's incredible American nonfiction writer. Um, he says something like, "Wandering is acceptable in an essay, maybe preferable." I mean, he's talking about writing essays, but I, I think I, I like books that allow themselves to wander a little bit. And I think you know, again, that 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 pilgrim or traveler persona that's at the root of this book. Um, helped engender that uh, that mindset, right? I mean, if you're if you're traveling, you and you're going to allow yourself to wander, right? Um, and I and as a guide, I'm sure you know it. Um, when you come to the water with an answer, a predetermined answer, you know you're in trouble, right? You know, I'm going to fish this <laughs> flat. Yeah. I'm going to fish this fly. I'm going to find the fish here. I mean, there's no better recipe for disaster, at least in my experience. Um, and so um, right. I try to take that same um, same mindset to the desk. Of course, it, it usually um, takes longer. And I have friends who, you know, they write a book proposal and it goes chapter by chapter and it says this is going to be about this and this is going to be. And I envy that. I really do, you know. Um, and I'm sure that my family <laughs> wished I operated in that way as well. But, um, but, um, you know, the, uh, if I know what I, if I think I know what I'm going to encounter, whether it's, you know, in the field or on the water or at the desk, I usually end up, um, sounding, uh, tinny or, or ending up in trouble, you know? Right. Right. Well, I think that's part of the, the interesting part about your book uh, was this kind of this kind of adventure, this journey that you went on as a writer, and then you're taking the reader on as well. And I, I think that's probably, you know, where your editors were pushing you is like that makes a good book. Like as as whatever you just said about Robert Frost, like if if you're not surprised, then the reader's not surprised as well. It seems seems you know I, I can see that. So I know that some of my audience has read your book, but some of them haven't. So in order to get to a couple of the other questions, can you just give like a, like an overview of what, what body of water is so that we can kind of go down a couple other little roads here? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, um, unfortunately I never got a real good elevator speech for the book. It's a little bit, um, um, <laughs> a little bit, uh, complex, I guess. But, um, you know, at the center of the book, as you mentioned, is a man named David Pinder Sr., who in 1958, um, roughly, went to work for a man named Gil Drake Sr. Um, you mentioned Gil's, uh, Gil Drake's son, Gil Drake Jr. But Gil Drake Sr. Um, in the late 50s had purchased an island in the Bahamas from the British crown, uh, an island that was then called Crow Carrion Key and later went on to be called Deepwater Key, perhaps in the first, um, never thought of it this way, but perhaps in the first first stages of marketing, if you will. <laughs> no one no one probably wanted to come to Crow Carrion Key, um, so they changed the name <laughs> to, to Deepwater Key. But um, Deepwater Key is a small island, um, small little key off the far east end of Grand Bahama, the the East End that was just ravaged by Dorian, which we'll talk about, I assume, a little bit later. But Pinder himself um, had never had never fished for bonefish. He had 
never fly fish for him. He had, of course, um, caught them, you know, with hand lines and he'd grown up, um, on the East end foraging. Uh, his father was a sponger. Uh, and so when Drake hired him, hired Pinder basically to, um, clear mangroves and, and lug rocks off of the Island that he intended to, uh, develop for a fishing lodge, he asked, Drake asked Pinder, you know, come here, let let me show you these fish here. Do you know where to find them? And he pointed out a school of bonefish to, to David Pinder. And David, of course said, Oh, of course I do. You know, I, I've seen them. Uh, I've seen them everywhere. And, um, he wondered to himself, you know, Pinder wondered to himself, what, what could Drake want with these fish? You know, they're, they're full of bones and they're, they don't taste very good and so on and so forth. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, little did he know that the, um, the fish that he would go on the next year to, to guide Drake to, uh, the bonefish would become the crux of the, uh, Bahamian tourism industry, you know, to the tune of $150 million a year. Um, so the book follows, um, David's life through his rise as a really, uh, a famous guide in the Bahamas. He, he was the first guide in the Bahamas. Uh, he predated, pretty much everyone. He was never as famous as Charlie Smith, but in in fishing circles, he was extremely revered. You know, you mentioned Gil Drake, his Gil Drake's partner, young Gil's uh, fishing partner back in the days was a guy named Guy de la Valden. Um, And as Guy says, Mm -hmm. who's, you know, an incredible writer and fisherman and outdoorsman, but as Guy says in the book, there were many talented guides in the Bahamas, but for decades, David Pinder was famous. Um, and so David goes on to not only build the lodge by hand, but also build its clientele over the years. And of course, um, you know, we talk about the geology and the history and the natural history that surrounds the area, but, but also, um, you know, as David's life unfolds he in the late uh 80s early 90s starts to develop some eye problems some cataract problems from essentially guiding for years without polarized glasses you know these this is way back in the days of of joe brooks who was a guest of the lodge and you know aj mclean and and um david who later in the book comes to be known as senior uh senior never wore polarized glasses back you know back in the day so wow. um he develops cataracts and um essentially at a certain point is is fired or or let go of by the lodge and they give him this kind of meager severance pay of of like sixteen thousand dollars i think it is which i I do the math on in the book amounts to like an extra, I think, 50 cents a day for every year, uh, every day that he guided over the years. Mm. You know, when we find senior in the book, it's, it's in his, his later years. He just turned 86 yesterday. I spoke with his daughter, Delcina. Um, but you know, when we meet him in the book, he's about 79, I think roughly. And, um, and he's, he's entered a phase of, of kind of, um, what I would call the, you know, the gravy days. I mean, he's, he's gone through these trials, but he has this kind of immense wisdom of a person who's lived a very intentional life in one spot for 
uh, you know, <laughs> 70 years or so. Um, and so when I right. encounter him, I'm, I'm, I'm not without some problems of my own, both, um, emotionally and, um, uh, and financially and, you know, um, occupationally, I guess you could say as well. Um, so, so I come to, um, to really glean an immense amount of wisdom from David, from David. I, I was lucky enough to meet him through kind of a friend who had fished with him for, for decades. And then of course, the first time I met him, I didn't want to meet the, the wise sage who had started the bone fishing industry. I just wanted to fish for bonefish. You know, I was all the way in the Bahamas, but um, after some time I went back to, to write a, an article for outside magazine. And, um, I spent some more time with David and I thought to myself, man, this guy is, he's not only the, the tap root, the original cornerstone of the bone fishing industry in the Bahamas, but he's also that rare, um, human being who is so tied to the landscape that he's really inseparable from it, you know? Um, and it was, it was just, uh, as you, as I said earlier, um, at that point, it was when I began to kind of see this this um, real to see him as a conduit to so many things, you know, race relations, economy, natural history, the the sustainability of this resource, um, uh, all kinds of stuff, and of course, probably most importantly, an example of what it means to be to be bettered by. Um, a sustained connection with uh, natural and wild places, you know? Um, and so he became a real, um, a dear friend and, and an important um, person, not only in my life, but of course, in the narrative of the book. And, and um, you know, I'd say the midsection of the book is where, where we find him um, ailing. He's, he's been forced into retirement and has no money and is taking some comfort in the fact that um, his sons, have and then his grandson has have gone on to be become prominent guides in the Bahamas. So he and he has taught mm-hmm. the generate generations of guides. But I'll let readers kind of go from there. As again, you know, if we're on an elevator yeah. speech, we we better be at the top of the <laughs> skyscraper now. But we went um, to the Empire State yeah, Building, exactly. Uh- <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. Well, no, but that's a that's a real good recap and it gives people kind of an idea. You know, this isn't really like a a bonefish book like Randall Kaufman's bonefish book or or you know, like that. It's it's more of this this story about bonefishing and and the Bahamas and like you say like race relations and and this this whole idea that it's mostly Americans coming down to the Bahamas and supporting this $151 million economy. But yet, you know, there's, there's times that like what Prescott Smith was doing of like, okay, we have to stop this. Like we, we kind of need to stop some, some parts of this. Like everyone that comes to the Bahamas is going to have to fish with a with a fishing guide, even if you just go drop a shrimp off a dock somewhere and, you know, wanting the lodges to be owned. And I, I get all this, but when, when all that was going on, I just couldn't help, but, but think, man, that is, that is really, that is an interesting kind of argument. That's an interesting position of being all or nothing like right. he was doing. Yeah. Do you want, I mean, do you want me to, 
backtrack a little bit or do you think your listeners sure. kind of um, no no i mean some do some don't i mean yeah. i have people that listen all over the place but, but yeah let's backtrack yeah, just a well, little bit I mean, and fill that in so kind of late in the book um prescott comes in as as i guess um a voice of i'm not quite sure what you know but where where he first appears in the book is as a um a guest at this, I'll call it a town hall meeting in Freeport, but, um, you know, he's at a, he's at a meeting in Freeport to protest a mine going in, in Freeport. And what he's saying to this board of, um, executives of the mine who've come down is, is basically like, look, each Island or key in the Bahamas exists as limestone. And when you dig into the limestone, you destroy the freshwater lens, which allows the mangroves to flourish, which allows the bait fish to flourish, which allow, you know, everything to kind of work harmoniously. So originally, you know, he comes into the book as basically saying like, Hey, look, um, we see what you're doing here. You're going to destroy these islands the same way some someone did bimini and the fish population is going to decline and then you're going to be gone and you're going to go somewhere else you know and so you know he's essentially in that at that point is kind of um aiming people toward that as you said bahamian owned um lodges and whatnot which economically i don't know that he was providing any solutions to that he was just you know posing it as an idea but then later about a year after the book came out the whole Bahamian, you got to fish with a guide thing, blah, 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 came out. And um, that stymied me as well. I thought, huh, this is weird, you know? Yeah, I thought it was weird because, like, my experience of going down there is, you know, I might fish at a lodge for a few days. and Or, or like, I went to Elbow Key, which is just off of Abaco and not far from where your book takes place. And uh-huh. you know, I go down there with my family and we want to just kind of hang out on elbow, but we yeah. want to rent a boat and, and, uh, kind of knock around a little bit, not real serious. You know, if there's a flat, maybe I'll wait it. Sure. And then I'm going to go over and fish with, you know, take my boys and we're going to go and fish five days with a guide. Right. Um, but kind of the whole reason to go is so that we can kind of knock around a little bit. And then, you know, we're renting a boat, we're renting a house, we're, we're eating at the restaurants, right, we're right. flying in, yeah. we're doing all of these things, and we're supporting the economy. But if you take away the idea that I'm able to rent my own boat and go with a fishing rod and just catch whatever, and I, like, what I wanted to do is like, I know I'm going to get the serious fishing with my boys on a guided trip in the marls, but I want to take my daughter and my wife and we want to go to some sandbars and I want to walk and show my daughter like, look, that's a bonefish tailing right there. That's cool. Let's maybe see if you can catch it, you know, with me, not with like, like, you know, a guide or whatever. And we might take five casts in a day or maybe none, you know, we might just find sand dollars or something. That was kind of the whole purpose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, but that was kind of the whole purpose that we went there instead of going to the Keys or instead of going somewhere else where, or Mexico or somewhere else that you could, I mean, there's a lot of locations that you could go and do a similar kind of trip. So I kind of thought, man, I don't know if they're thinking this 
all the way through. But then I have some other friends that go down in there and fish at, at North Riding Point all the time. And they were adamant about this. They were just like, yes, this is the way and it has to be this way. And I was just like, man, I don't know. It seems yeah. like you're just really drawing a line in the sand. That, I mean, I love the you know, I love the idea that that you you should have to get a license if you were going to do that, right? You know, if you were going to just yeah, fish no on your one own, would, you should no have one, to get I mean, a license. Americans are totally yeah, Americans are totally used to getting a license. Right. Like I thought just making an expensive license. If you want to fish sure. on your own, 50 right. bucks. Right, right, right. You know? Yeah, well, um it's funny because when we went down to kind of celebrate the publication of this book with the Pinder family in, in McLeanstown at the East end, um, I really wanted to take my son, Luca, um, bone fishing for the first time. And, um, I was fishing with David's son, David Jr., who fishes out of Freeport and is a legendary guide up there. Um, and for whatever yeah, reason, course. Um, Junior hadn't put my son Luca on the roster for, you know, if you're fishing with a captain, then you don't, you're, then the guy, then the angler doesn't need a license. Right. Um, but Luca right. wasn't on that original list. I think it was a last minute thing we decided to bring him. And so he said, well, you gotta go get a license for him. And let me tell you, Tom, finding a license, a fishing license in Freeport was the most inane exercise I have ever been involved in. I mean, I went to this office, you know, office of government permits and such and such. No, no, you got to go to the second floor over here. You know, I, we drove around Freeport all day and finally got one. Um, I almost got it framed wow. for him just because it was um, <laughs> and you know, every third person would say, you don't need a license. You don't need a license. And, and I said, no, it's a new law. You know, no, you don't need one. You know, anyway, it was a hoot, but, um, yeah, I think, wow. I, I think it was unfortunate to see, um, to see that whole thing unfold because there are hundreds of people a year, maybe more who want to do exactly what you, you know, I mean, if I go to the Bahamas well, yeah. right now, I want to go with my family. I want to fish for an hour a day on on just the right tide, and you know, right. um, that doesn't mean I'm not going to spend. And, and a ton I really of money. don't think, I really don't think that that's what they were going after. No, I think that there's a lot of people that go down there and and do a DIY trip and and you know do everything they can not to use a guide and not to, you know, to, to spend as little money as possible. And, you know, I get that too, but I don't know. Uh, you know, it just, it's just kind of a funny place and it makes it even, even, even kind of, well, funny is not the right word because it makes it even more of a weird spot to be in now after the hurricane. Right. Because, I mean, I have so many friends and so many people leaving out of South Florida taking, ships worth of supplies over there, drywall, plywood, roofing supplies, everything you can imagine, you know, of course, food, water, diapers, medical supplies, all of this stuff over there. Um, and, and like Americans love the Bahamas. They love the Bahamas so much. And it's, it has such a, a warm spot in people's heart in the, in the South Florida area, because they take their boats over there 
pretty much every weekend. I mean, there is a big population of right, people that right. goes to Bimini or goes to, you know, the Marls or goes to, you know, Abaco or goes somewhere in the Bahamas pretty much every weekend from anywhere from, you know, Jupiter to Miami, hundreds of boats. And now those people are like really rallying, uh, raising money, getting supplies, doing things that would not be done otherwise. Right, right. And so now, I mean, like where your book took place was absolutely the hardest hit area maybe ever. I mean, you have a, a incredibly strong hurricane moving at a half a mile an hour or one mile an hour for three like days, 20, right? 20 to yeah. 24 hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, God, just incredible. So like at this point, like what do you hear from all of these all of your friends there. I mean, yeah. when it first happened, we were exchanging some messages mm-hmm. on Instagram, like, you know, how to, how to try to help, mm-hmm. how to do whatever. But like what, as, as this has kind of progressed, what do you hear now? I, I'm, a, I'm a lot more encouraged now than I was, say, a month ago. I mean, am I remembering correct? It's about six weeks since, or does that sound right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, six weeks in. Um, I mean, it's late October now. I feel like that was around the first of September, right? First, second, third, yeah, right in there. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So um, I mean, I hear I hear actually hear encouraging things, really. Um, I, I text or um I WhatsApp with um with Delcina every couple of days. Delcina is David Senior's daughter, and um they seem to be Doing okay, you know they're up in Freeport now because everything in McLeanstown uh, has been essentially ravaged or destroyed. You know, many people probably saw um, Marvin Thomas on CNN. I mean, he was—he's uh, an old prominent guide from Deepwater Key who is a, is a character in the book, and he was, you know, walking around McLeanstown just throwing anything salvageable in a in a sheet and putting it over his shoulder, you know? So, um, I'm people who haven't actually looked at the images of what has gone on should, should take a look because the Bahamians are a super, oh, just like such tough people, you know? And I remember when the, I saw the projections for the hurricane, like, okay, I thought, though, this is going to be a hurricane. They've endured hurricanes before, but this is maybe a once in a, not a once in a lifetime hurricane. This is a once in in a millennium uh, hurricane, right? Yeah. I mean, this kind of like uh, the, on the equivalent of like Andrew for the United States. Bingo, like, exactly. Andrew basically yeah. just just wiped Homestead clean. Right, right. So, I mean, the the level of um, impact is something that I I wasn't equipped to, uh, for, you know. But um, I think, you know. People are beginning the recovery. Some folks, um, what we did for, I mean, there have been a a ton of great outreach efforts. I think, you know, GoFundMe projects have popped up everywhere. Uh, And what we did for the family was just to raise as much money as we could privately for them. And, um, And we did do a little GoFundMe as well, just for people who wanted to go over the internet, which I gladly, I don't want to, you know, um, turn this into a sales call, but would gladly um, provide you the information with later on. Um, But, you know, that money is going to do stuff like replace 
cars that were lost, literally tossed into the ocean. You know, um, there were, I saw a couple of aerial pictures of Deepwater Key. And I mean, the, the flat uh, just to the south of the island looked like a parking lot. Uh, there were that many cars out there. So, um, wow. you know, the fact that they've survived that and are moving into recovery mode says uh, just, you know, worlds about their constituents uh, and their their constitution, rather. I mean, these are just incredibly strong people. Um, so most of East End, as far as I know, is essentially um, up in Freeport right now, which is... Um, I don't know. I've heard some some kind of scary things in terms of how Freeport um, is operating now. I guess um, you know it, it, when you um, well, we started out <laughs> talking about grizzly bears um, be overpopulating, you know. But like when when you move um, a population of people who are um, in desperate need of, of food and shelter and water. Um, into another population of people that are desperate for that. I'm sure I've heard some scary things like crime-wise going. Um, you know, I haven't heard that from Delcina. She says that they're safe and and they're doing fairly well. Um, I got a picture of Senior um, that I have put up on my office window now a couple days after the hurricane, and he's, he's, he's in pressed khakis. His shirt's tucked in, and he's wearing a really sweet kangle with a smile on his face. So kind of a, an indomitable hmm. man and spirit. Um, but other folks, you know, um, have have taken a little um, move. And we, uh, some, some client, friends and mutual clients kind of um, helped Miko Glinton's family get um, over to uh, to Florida and then Miko's family, I'm not sure if this is private. We might have to edit this out later, but um, Miko's family's in Illinois right now, and they're just kind of shored up trying to figure out what the next step is. They're staying with a generous um, client of Miko's, uh, um, uh, I think a partner at North Riding Point. So, you know, I think they're trying to figure out what the next step is. North Riding Point is uh, allegedly going to open up in December, and folks are, are booking trips for, for April already. On the other hand, Deepwater Key, I don't know if you saw this last week, but they closed for good. Deepwater Keys? Yeah, they're closed for good. So, I mean, whether or not some new investors, um, heed the call and decide they're going to, um, you know, reopen it, um, remains to be seen. But right now I think the, the club deep or deep water key um, had a, a pretty robust GoFundMe that they are going to distribute to their, um, to their 50 employees. But that's, uh, you know, all of which is to say, I think on a day-to-day basis, people are surviving, but what's scariest and what remains to be seen is what's going to happen to that economy. Because, you know, um, McLeanstown, for instance, at the East End, the the Lodge Deepwater Key Club employed 50 people. I want to say McLeanstown is a town of 400. Right. That's including kids uh, and, and elderly people as well. So the survival of those of those people financially was entirely based on 
on both East End Lodge, you know, um, and Deepwater Key. So now that they're now that Deepwater Key is gone, um, I don't know, you know, what's going to happen. I think it's a um, yeah a real wait and well, see. Well, I do I do know this that uh, there has already been a, an incredibly generous outpouring of financial support for the Bahamas through stuff like, you know, Johnny Morris at Bass Pro put together this this amazing campaign and has raised tons of money. Yeah. And then there, like you say, there's everything from, you know, something like a, a person like you would put together to these really, really organized things like Bass Pro Shops is putting together. And, and they're, the anglers are eager to help. Man, and, it's uh, been my incredible. Just you know, people email me right off the bat. Old clients, people who read the book. How can I help? What can I do? You know, um, and I think what we encouraged really off the bat was like, here's the wire information. <laughs> Just wire some money as quick as you can. You know, but right. man, what I what I've been telling people lately is like. <laughs> You know, just don't forget about them because no. the fact that you're not hearing about it on the news anymore, yeah. and if you live in, you know, somewhere inland, it doesn't mean that it's cleaned up. I mean, my experience is with a hurricane. We went through a whole bunch of hurricanes in right. the Keys, and man, you've got FEMA and you've got um, electrical trucks. Yep. Uh, I mean, it would be a convoy of electrical trucks mm -hmm. that would come down. Hundreds of electrical trucks. You would have hundreds and hundreds of dump trucks and bulldozers and all of this stuff. And it still took a year mm -hmm. or or more for the keys to recover from some of these hurricanes right. to where you couldn't tell that one had gone through there. Mm -hmm. And now you're talking about uh, an area that no matter how much money the United States gives, they're not going to have hundreds of dump trucks. They're not going to have hundreds of electrical trucks. No matter what, it's just, it's an island in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, Freeport so Airport there is are still closed, obvious right? To commercial, wow, I don't know. I think I, to commercial flights, I don't know. it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's going to take a while, with you, and that's what I yeah. keep saying, man. Is just don't forget no. about this. Like, like keep keep supporting it financially, and keep checking in on it, and mm -hmm. keep you know just kind of remember that it's going to be a long time before, um, you know, a contribution is not needed, right? Because yeah. I don't know what the Bahamian government is going to be able to do. Certainly nothing like what the United States government can do after a storm. And I'm sure everybody's doing what they can. I haven't heard great things about where that aid is going. You know, the aid that's coming to directly to the government. You know, um, in fact, I've heard to the contrary. Right. Like I've heard, I've heard people say, um, I haven't seen a water bottle yet. Mm. Well, what right away, like I I just looked it up. It, it happened. The storm happened on uh, September 9th. Nice. And I was down um, doing some stuff in the Fort Lauderdale area. And there was um, actually did a, a, a podcast with a guy, Matt George. And he was he was going over there because he's in like the, um, the cell phone kind of mm -hmm. business. And he was going over there right away to set up like some emergency kind of networks so that people could actually have some kind of communication, mostly, mostly set up for first responders and, you know, so that people on the ground could communicate what they needed and all this stuff. But he was going over, he was the first person that I knew that was actually going over there and he's flying over there in, in helicopters and stuff. And one of the things that was, was a concern was that, 
they put the supplies down and they were gone. Like somebody just took them. Yeah. Like you don't know who took them, yeah. but they're gone. And so, you know, the second step is, okay, now you have to uh, create some sort of law. Like you have to have some sort of law enforcement there so that you can create an area that's safe for these supplies to go and then make sure that, you know, water is getting to the people that need it, you know, and, and supplies and everything. And that was kind of what was going on immediately. Like you've got contractors over there, like military contractors, like setting up, you know, areas that are Uh safe to drop because, right. Right. I mean, even, you know, in the keys, when, when we had a hurricane like that, I mean, I always said like, you know, the first, and, and we had nothing like what happened there, but like the first couple of days are all right. And then when the ice runs out, Mm -hmm. that's when things change. Right. Like nobody's got any power and you've got ice, you know, you've got all these coolers you filled with ice before the storm and that's going to last, you know, three or four days. And so you got food and you got ice and you got water and everything's kind of good. But then when that runs out, that's when... That's when it starts to get a little weird because now nobody's got power. Now the food's all spoiled. Now <laughs> money doesn't really mean anything right, because right, nobody's right. got power. Right. You can't really you can't really uh-huh. buy anything. Like and you know, so now goods are kind of currency right. at, at some point. Like it's it's just kind of a weird, weird position. But I've seen hurricanes, you know, do do uh do amazing things, like amazingly destructive, and then also like amazingly having an, an ability, or or because people are in this situation, you just see oftentimes the best in people, like people helping people, people donating, people um, really sacrificing, uh, and then coming f- together as a community like never before. And I'm sure that that. That's what's going to happen in the Bahamas as well, but it's just going to take, it's just going to take some time, you know, like a lot of time. No, I think that's really wise advice that you give to just say, hey, if you really want to do something, check in 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 six weeks and see what you can do because there's going to be just as many things to do then as there are now, and and your help will be needed probably, probably more than I know. kind of through the book i've met a, a new friend this guy from wyoming who used to own a lodge on the, um or own a cabin on Deepwater key and um he and his his wife actually built the anglican church on sweetings key that um that the 30 some people of sweetings rode out storm in you know and i think the the church was mm-hmm. the only one that that the only building that really survived on Sweetings, which is just, you know, one more down from deep water. Uh, he said the same thing, you know, check in in a year. That's when the real work's going to happen. And, and, uh, Hmm. yeah, I mean, I haven't really wrapped my head around it. It's really been tough to take, but I'm just amazed again at the kind of strength and resiliency of those people. And, you know, when I talked to Delcina, she seems bright and cheery and, moving on um you know with the the next thing she i remember really early on asking her like you know outside of a car like what are your immediate needs and uh she said well trinity that's her daughter all the trinity school books were lost you know and we just paid like 500 dollars for those and um so that Mm. you know that was one of our immediate kind of goals was to get get everything back moving as quickly as possible but that was like three days after the storm and she was talking about 
wanting to get her daughter back to school. So I just, I mean, what right. kind of a huge spirit does it take to be able to to do that? And then that's, that's. Something. Well, there's like, you know, going through something like that, there is this, there is this, you know, there are like these benchmark things where you're trying to restore kind of any sort of order back into your life. And school's a big one. Like when you can get the kids back in school, like, first of all, now you can do some work that maybe you weren't able to do while they were right. around, but that's a, that's a giant benchmark of, okay, we're making progress. Like now the school's open and the kids are in school and that's huge. That's a huge benchmark. You know, the other thing I tell people too is like, be ready to go back down there and go fishing like right. as soon as possible. Like, cause that's where the economy, like that's the economy and like giving money is one thing, but you don't know who's getting it. You don't, like you say, like there's, there is, who knows? Like you, who, who's actually getting that money? I don't know. But when you go and you, you know, you go to North Riding Point when they're back open and, and you book a fishing guide, now that's another huge benchmark. Like all of a sudden now we're running trips again. Like that's when the economy, you know, is stimulated a little bit and people are like, okay, we're getting, we're getting there, you know, and there's some hope, you know, when people start seeing people with fly rods showing up again, that's, that's, that's hope. Well, that's cool, man. I, I love the book. I want to ask you one other thing. Sure. Like there is always, and I noticed it with you too. Like you're, you're kind of a, you're, you're definitely a Montana guy, but you have this, this love and appreciation for the Bahamas or for the flats and in these kind of areas. And you see like, there's tons of, 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 uh, kind of vagabond style guides that guide out in Montana or Wyoming or Idaho. And then they come down to the keys for a while. And then you have all these writers, like you mentioned Guy, Guy de la Valdine. Um, he's one, so many others that have a fondness for Montana and write about it. And then they also have this, this fondness for a place that, you know, by, by on the surface, they almost look opposite mm -hmm. like yeah. you it's hot one's hot and flat and full of water and the other is mountainous and and kind of cold and and full of wildlife and you know it but but there's a draw right like right. what do you see why do you think there's that draw between the two places yeah like that? it's you're absolutely right i mean it's like the yin and the yang i think i say early in the book I, I, upon first looking at the, the flats it was almost like um, seeing the, the inverse of what I'm used to seeing, you know, everything out West is, is almost, it's almost all vertical. You know, your eye is constantly kind of climbing yeah. and, um, on the flats as, as you would know far better than I, but like, it's, it's the opposite, right? I mean, um, there's a, you're looking both horizontally farther than you could ever see, but you're also looking vertically down right into the water yeah there's some i think it's like it's almost like you know meeting uh i don't know how to say, quite explain it um almost like meeting your um twin that you were separated from at birth you know like the old uh greek myths go <laughs> yeah, or something like it's interesting you like like never thought of it like that i remember seeing it for the first time and thinking oh i've been here before you know even though i hadn't of course but um 
you know, the right. other thing about the flats is that and then there's I the think, wildness. Yeah, they make you feel small. You know, the same way the mountains do. Um, I'm sure. You know, that's yeah. part of what your son loves when he's out chasing elk around is just um, feeling uh, feeling tiny in an immense space. And um, yeah, man, I just I think um, I think there's something about that. And all those guys that you you know that you mentioned or alluded to, you know, the McGuane's of the world or the Harrisons of the world, and um, you know, those guys. I think um, in addition to the supreme sport of the of the fish on the flats were also just drawn to the, um, to the wildness of the country. Um, and that's, right. I think that's, that's because funny. that is, that is like, I mean, when you look at something like Yellowstone national park, that's I guess by argument, you could argue that that's the wildest place that we have in this country. Like some <laughs> of the deep interior portions of Yellowstone that are really far away from roads and, and not many people go there. Um, there's obviously many other wild places, but like you go out and it's not every day you're going to see a grizzly bear attack an elk or a <laughs> wolf kill or something like that. But man, you get out like on the flats and Marquesas or, you know, up in the Everglades and stuff. And it's very often you see like a fish get eaten by a shark oh, yeah, or like sure. a bird get attacked or, or like all this you know, this, it's wild. Like it is really wild. Yeah. And there are all kinds of creatures out there that can, can sting you or stab you or, or mess you up in some way or bite you. And, uh, the other place, you know, is like on the interior portion of the United States is kind of, kind of that Wyoming, Idaho, Montana area. Right. Other than that, it'd be Alaska, I guess. And, but it's, I guess, I guess, you know, sometimes I think about it, it's like, well, I guess it's people that are attracted to the wild are attracted to both places. And there's just this beauty, you know, in, in both places, very different beauty, but, but, you know, beauty nonetheless. Yeah. There it's like, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, I, for years, I always thought people were just <laughs> hun snobs, you know, like I couldn't understand why they like poo pooed pheasants or whatever or grouse or whatever like once you start digging into them they are so addictive a because of the um yeah you know quality of points the dog gets on them but b you just get to cover so much ground and um they're actually as close to hmm. they're the upland equivalent to the bonefish you know um in that they um, they don't require a whole lot to sustain a population or a fishery, you know, but they require a few real specific things, you know, like, um, if you're, you know, when you're bone fishing, you, you'll go, yeah. I can't believe there's a fish there, you know, in that little of water. And same thing with huns. Like, I can't believe there's a cubby there on this barren ridge top <laughs> that has basically cheat grass and rocks, you know, um, but they're up there eating the, the little green shoots of grass and, um, it's awesome. It's really fun. And it's, it's, it's hard work, you know, I mean, the other, um, parallel that I see with bone fishing and hunt hunting is if you ask yourself at the end of the day, you did all that work for that, you know, you know, you, you, your dog logged 28 miles and, and <laughs> you walked 15 and, um, you shot two birds that wouldn't even, <laughs> you know, fill 
a crock pot or whatever, you're like, yeah, I did. It was pretty awesome too. Yeah. You know? Well, that's um, a, so, there are a lot of parallels. Anyway. I mean, like that's what we, we were just talking about. Like just the, just the parallels between the, the beauty and the, you know, even though it seems completely opposite, but then there are these critters that people like to go after, whether it's the bonefish or the elk or the tarpon or the, the hun or, you know, chucker. I've never done that either. Do you hunt chucker? Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. I know they live in some pretty no, interesting very little, areas. Very little, but you know, there's just these but there's just these kind Idaho, of similarities yeah. between kind of the things that you pursue and the beauty that is there, and then I guess that draws a particular type of person, you know, a, a, to both of the areas. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, it's like we were saying, it's somebody who's who's drawn to. Um, wild places and, and, um, discovery and surprise. And, um, and I think somebody who's not, well, who's interested in, in, in getting out of their own, uh, their own head, their own self, their own world for, for a little bit of time, because those wild places and creatures can't help, but draw you out of yourself, uh, and into a bigger, bigger world. that's you know, much greater and grander than anything we could contained in our own, yeah. our own yeah. well, little brains, you know? You are uh, a poet as well. You put that pretty nicely. I can understand how your mind works a little bit. So the poetry. <laughs> Good. Let me know when you figure it out. I, it's taken me 43 years and I'm well, not even, well, you know, I not mean, even you know, you, you, you yet, explain so. it well. Like, <laughs> you know, it's a wild place that draws a certain type of person and, and uh, you put way more thought and effort into, into, saying it right. than than I do. But um I just kinda think it's a cool place and it, it attracts cool people. But then you then you put a nicer spin on it. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> way to put it too. I think that's true, you know. Yeah, well they do stick with you, don't they? I mean you Man, I how started guiding in nineteen died or 19, have you died, uh, you know, um ninety one, I think, or nineteen ninety in Jackson. And right. then, you know, I don't yeah. guide full time anymore, um, but it's it's kind of a lifestyle of that, like taking people fishing, doing the television shows. It's all it's kind of similar, but the full time guiding stopped mm-hmm. a, a few years ago. Where you know, I mean, I was on a three hundred day a year schedule for for quite some time, yeah. and um, yeah, that's a good way to really get wow. far out of wow. balance yeah. and possibly destroy a relationship. So. <laughs> you know, it's not the wisest thing to do, but, you know, Key West is a pretty yeah. expensive place to live. Yeah. So sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. You you need every day you can get, right? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I mean, well, I imagine, though, you've got some oh, pretty absolutely. good friends um, from from guiding them over the, guiding people from over the years. And it's pretty remarkable, I think, you know, the... The the client horror stories are always fun to share, and they definitely are kind of indelible. But you know, when you look at it percentage wise, oh yeah, I mean for sure, absolutely, a hundred percent. I mean that that's kind of why the 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 horror stories kind of stand out is because really the run of the mill stories are are these amazing people <laughs> that turn mm-hmm. out to be like family and when you get when you're at it for 20 years or more i mean you you end up fishing with people right. that 
I mean, you become as close to as as any of your friends, and and they're really like family. You know, they really are. And um, and so that's why the 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 one horror story stands out <laughs> like a sore thumb. I know my wife describes our summers now as summer camp because you know we just have this constant influx of of good old friends coming into town and and fishing and enjoying themselves and they're all like aunts and uncles and cousins to the kids and so yeah. Um, well yeah, sounds like you've made good, a lot of it's a uh, good lifestyle that's for sure <laughs> well, I don't know, you know how your four hundred one k guiding guiding can be. Um, it can be tough to make a living because gen- generally the other thing about guiding is that, you know, for for you to be yeah. able to guide 300 days a year or, you know, in a trout fishing situation, maybe maybe a trout fishing guy gets 200 days a year in a certain area or maybe 150. Um, but in that in that kind of area, now That'd that has be to lot. be, yeah, yeah. you know, a real tourist town that can sustain that kind of, you know, so the real estate reflects that the uh-huh. grocery prices reflect that uh-huh. everything reflects that so you know i'm sure. i was living in jackson hole wyoming and living uh-huh. in key west florida probably arguably two of the most expensive places in the country to live and so you know i mean that 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 is <laughs> yeah, that's a tough thing for sure. you know right. you, kind of the drawback is like you know it's it's an island so there's not a lot of places outside of that that you can go. And then oh, Jackson yeah, Hole yeah. is kind of an island in itself. I mean, you've got the Tetons on one side and the Elk Refuge on the other side. The, other than going over to Idaho to live, there's really not a a place where, you know, the where where the cheap seats are. Like the cheap seats are an hour away, you know, and north of that is Yellowstone. So there's no not, kidding. you know, yeah. you, you gotta go to Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um but you know, no complaints. I mean, the 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 guide lifestyle was was amazing. But it no, uh, it, no it does come with he, with yes, a share of ditto. you know things like that that might you know when you're first starting out you might not really put your arms around like wow I'm going to be living in you know the most expensive area in the country. <laughs> so how much is the rent going to cost? And you know how many days a month am I going to have to work and right. all of that? But yeah. man, guiding was uh-huh. nothing but good to me, and um, it, it it was just a a great way to to learn a lot about people and and learn a lot about communication and to just have some amazing experiences that I'll never forget. Um, so how do people? find your work like body of water is one thing but you've got a lot of other stuff like you've got books on poetry you said you were writing a new book like how does somebody find all your stuff yeah i mean i have sure um well i do i have a website it's just c c like the letter c (laughs) dombrowski.com i think that's it i don't check it a whole lot but yeah c dombrowski.com and, um, you know, my publishers have pages for me. Uh, Body of Water was published by Milkweed Editions. And then um, I have three books of poems. The latest is called Ragged Anthem. And that was just out this la- this past spring. And um, I'm working on another book of, uh, of nonfiction. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm maybe in the bottom of the sixth or something like that. I'm, st- I'm not in the seventh inning stretch period although well, my publisher you know when i think about when i think about writing a book man there's like this um, romantic but, notion um, of being in the yeah. being in the rocky mountains with a with a giant pile of wood outside with a with a pot of coffee 
you know, on the on the stove, snow up to the window, and you just lock yourself in there and start writing like all winter. I don't know if that's how it works. It probably isn't at all like that. <laughs> that's the the that I mean, I would say that's definitely the vision. And um I like I was saying earlier, I try to um I try to work only June through early October on the river anymore. So, um, you know, what, what is inevitably a pretty um, schizophrenic life can at least be a schizophrenic life with a concrete beginning and end to the season. You know, I don't do any early spring trips, even though we have some good fishing out here. But yeah, I've got a little shack in the backyard. <laughs> it's, it's electric heat, so there's just no fireplace. But yeah, I got a little shack and it's about 25 feet from the house and the dog comes out with me. And once I get the kids off to school and breakfast dishes done, I just head out there and, and crank all day, <laughs> go as far as the caffeine will take me and then maybe close the shop with a glass of wine and um, and then print it out and go, go from scratch the next day. Um, but really, I, I mean, I have found over the years, I don't know, I can't remember which old teacher of mine said this, but um, she, he or she was quoting Rodan, who said, um, I don't have time for inspiration, by which I guess he meant, like, if you sit around waiting for inspiration, yeah. you're not going to be working, and yeah. work is really what, um, <laughs> what you know, pushes the pages across the desk. So, um I try to just establish as much momentum as I can. And then of course I, I, um, you know, you need sanity breaks and, um, you just, you blame that on needing right. to, uh, <laughs> to get the dog, the bird yeah. dog on birds. That dog right? would go crazy if he's cooped up. Uh, my family <laughs> seems to understand that one. Right. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's, that's the way the winter works. And I feel damn fortunate to be, to be able to do it and to just be, um, so you know, to be able in, to in that work, are you still writing for the magazines or, work, or um, online publications or anything like that? Oh yeah, I'm still writing for the magazines. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I do a lot. Of, um, you know, I just had a bird hunting piece come out in Gray's Sporting Journal, and uh, I do a lot of work okay, for this yeah. uh, magazine I love called the Angler's Journal. I write actually. I think I'm I'm a contributing editor there, and I write a piece just about for every every magazine, every issue that they put out. Um, who did I? Do? Oh, I just wrote a piece on um, a guy named Dan Laren, who used to guide McGuane and Harrison, and kind of all the classic yeah. Livingston, um, you know, artiste types. Danny was was their guide and um, a fan, fascinating character. Uh, so I wrote a piece. It's, it's kind of. Yeah. I, I would say I write a fair amount on the guide's life for those guys at Angler's Journal. I wrote a piece called The Gospel of Jim on Harrison that was, we fished a fair amount together. And um, this one, although it didn't intend to be, ended up being kind of elegiac because it was published right before he passed away. So yeah, I still do about, I'd say four or five pieces a year that are freelance. And and I love it. It's really fun for me to get away from yeah. the... Um, the manuscript, you know, the nonfiction uh, book. And I feel like I've, you know, yeah. taken the weights off my ankles and I can just, I enjoy it. Uh, again, you know, that was another surprise to me. When I first started out as a poet, I, I, I thought I'll never sell out and do that 
stuff for magazines, yeah. and now well, I, I really love it. I don't know. It seems um, like it might be fantastic. tough to make it as a poet. I mean, for any for anybody to make it as a poet, like not oh, not it's, not it's you, impossible. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless you're no, like Bob impossible. Dylan. Yeah, yeah. No, it's impossible to make it. Uh, there's right. No, there's probably you know maybe two or three poets a year who are living off their royalties and appearance fees, and then the rest, um, the rest, right. you know, who are making. A so you do some of that too, teaching. right? Yeah, I still I still teach a fair amount. Yeah. Every now and then I'll take a take a, a gig for a semester and I enjoy it quite a bit, but it's another um that's another uh can of worms, you know, to open up uh, at this point, I think, in the conversation. I I, I mean I love it, but it, it you know, it takes away energy wise from from everything, especially um yeah. writing, you know. Um and I think it's it's probably worth noting that like guiding the better you are as mm, yeah. a teacher, yeah. the harder the work is. You know, the better you are as a fishing guide, the harder your job gets because you're you, you know, you don't even sleep in the summer. You wake up, you wake up in the middle of the night, you're thinking about the tides and the wind and this water temperature and all that stuff. And, you know, same with same with teaching. In fact, I know the some of the best teachers I ever had, they just kept a notebook next to their bed and and wrote to us students anytime they woke up in the middle that's of the interesting. night. So, I hadn't thought about it like that before, but that's that's really uh that's really very true. Like the better you are, the harder it gets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't I mean don't you yeah. Don't you remember those guides from at point in your life, the guys who were able to just totally oh, absolutely. clock in and clock out and never really gave a shit? Man. And, didn't you just I know. wish every now and then? I can't, like, I've got, God, I've I got a guy like in my so head and right so, now, you know, and he was just this, this cowboy, <laughs> and he everybody loved him, yeah. and he didn't care if he caught anything. And he, you know, <laughs> you're looking at him floating down the river, and he's got his feet up, he's eating a sandwich, uh-huh. his people are laughing. <laughs> he's he like he like nobody's he's even fishing, <laughs> and they're on the wrong side of the river, and and he's like, oh, I gotta, I'm gonna hit this gravel bar. I gotta take two swipes on the oars, and and now now he's floating right down the middle of the river and they're laughing it's like wow you're over there sweating you're working your uh, ass off trying yeah. to get somebody to catch something and and uh yeah i know exactly what you're talking about like yeah like god it'd be nice to be like that guy <laughs> well, but you, you can't go. be yeah. you just can't exactly. like that's just not yeah. in the dna yeah, but yeah but man we got to get together and, um, and go fishing no, um i know that yeah. uh i know we'd have a good time man yeah let's Let's do that. Bring your boys up here. We'll we'll um we'll get on the river and and um and make sure they they've got my contact if they want to go hunt some birds this fall. I'd love to meet them. Oh, up. be be careful what you ask for, man. I mean they'll they'll sh- they'll be camping in oh, your yard. I love it. I love. It. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this. Re- you know, recently just because I've been guiding for twenty one years, and you know, there's a there's a next gen out there, and there, yeah, there's probably two or three generations new in yeah. Missoula uh, compared to me, right? Plenty of us old guys spend plenty of time bitching about how, you know, the new generation doesn't have enough respect, doesn't have the etiquette, doesn't have, you know, just the wherewithal to conduct themselves, right. at least the way we But the only one, there's only one thing to, to do with that is, is teach them. It's up for debate, but... 
You gotta show them. Exactly, yeah. And so I think we, you know, any serious outdoors person has a, a good level of secrecy to them, right? You don't want to show too many people the right, right. stuff because it's a, um, it can be ruined, right? But at the same time, you know, we have to balance it and you have to say, all right, I'm going to take this guy out. I'm going to show him a few things because if I don't, then whatever the next generation does is their own business because I didn't try hard enough to, you know, affect some change. Um, so that, that's that's well, been a little epiphany. I got a couple of guinea pigs for you. In the sense that... I got a couple of guinea pigs. They'll, they'll, to... they'll come up there and... and uh... All right, send them up this way. It sounds great. <laughs> No, they're they're driving every which way. I get the gas bill. I promise you, they're not afraid to drive. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Good for them, man. That's great. I envy them that early Montana. I mean, I can remember my first three summers out here like they happened yesterday, and it's it's such great country, yeah. and, and it's awesome to know they're out exploring. Right on. Go do it. Go do it, man. I appreciate your time, and thank you so much. It was great to uh, connect with you. Awesome. And if you want to get his book, Body of Water, that's the one that I liked so much uh, about the Bahamas. That's what we were talking about all day. But check out his other stuff, too. All right, Chris, thank you. Thanks, Tom. <laughs>